Well, folks, hello and welcome to another fantastic episode of RFRX. I see so many familiar faces here, and I'm so glad that you're here to join us for another Monday night. My name is Eric Wells, and I am the support group director for Recovering from Religion. And with me, co-hosting today, you've seen him before, Mr. Rob Palmer, helpline agent and ambassador for Recovering from Religion. Why don't you go ahead and introduce our amazing guest for today? Our amazing special guest. Gail Jordan is an estate planning attorney and a former Southern Baptist who left the faith years ago when her then teenagers began asking questions she could not answer. Her research led her and her children into the light of reason and rationality. Years later, she still feels the effects, both negative and positive, of the dramatic shift in perspective and attitude. It's this sympathy and compassion that drives her to reach out to help others to navigate the emotional and physical process involved in leaving one's faith. Gail lives in Oregon, where she raises goats and chickens, I didn't know that, and is trying her hand at grape growing at her sunny hillside home, affectionately known as Peak Haven. She blogs about a variety of topics at Happy Healthy Heathen. Take it away, Gail Jordan. Thank you, Rob. What a joy to be in front of the hometown crowd. I've given this talk a number of times, but never to my own folks. And so you will forgive me a little nervousness. Uh, thank you all for coming. I say that every week, but especially thank you all for coming tonight. Seeing your beautiful faces gives me confidence and encouragement to be able to tell this story. Uh, the the story is a, a couple of years old, several years old, but it's um, it seems like it's almost more relevant now than it was before. So if you'll bear with me for one second, I'm going to do the screen share thing. Sounds good. Let's see here. All right. Can you see it? Yes, Gail, it's perfect. Outstanding. Uh, well, as I said, I'm so, I'm so very glad to be with you tonight. Um, if you have been to RFRs before, you do know that I am the Executive Director of Recovering from Religion. It is so near and dear to my heart, and we have I have loved this opportunity to come together uh, week to week to hear these presentations, and, and now it's my turn to tell a little bit about my story. Um, this is a, it's a little bit of a narrative. If you'll bear with me, I'm going to turn it into kind of a story for about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up to questions, and I'm happy to answer them. Um, this is the story of my experience running for office in Tennessee in a rural five-county district just a few miles south of Nashville. And I promise it's a whole lot more interesting than that made it sound. Um, I ran for this particular office in 2016, and I got the usual 35% of votes that Democrats get in Tennessee. And then in 2018, the seat became an open seat. And I've talked with my family, one of whom is here with the same last name as I do. You can probably identify her. I counsel with my family and loved ones about the opportunity to run. And, and one more time, I'm going to say this statement. Um, recovering from religion is a nonprofit. And the political views that I'm sharing with you tonight belong to me and only to me. So I, when I first began to consider running, uh, I, as I said, I talked with my family and we decided that uh, this was the, the time and the place was right to run, provided that we would ran our campaign based on transparency, integrity, ethics, and dignity. In other words, there was just gonna be no playing in the mud for us. Tennessee has had a Republican supermajority for years. And it was going to take all of our effort and time to run on the issues that were important to our district, healthcare, education, infrastructure, the usual. So before I start talking about what the campaign was like, I wanna share something with you. Now, this was true just prior to my run in 2018 about the state of Tennessee. Tennessee was 10th highest poverty in the country. We had the eighth shortest lifespan. We were number 42 on the comprehensive ranking of quality of life. We were 15th from the bottom in education. We were ninth from the bottom in per student spending. And we were the third highest prescriber of opioids among all 50 states. Additionally, there were more deaths in Tennessee due to the opioid crisis than deaths by automobile accidents in 2017. Republican supermajority, 10 years. Now, the next screen is gonna be black for just a second. And let me say, I recognize what I'm asking you to do. I know you have seen enough political videos <laughs> to last a lifetime. And I'm gonna ask you to sit through one more. It's only 60 seconds and it will give you more of an idea 
about what we were running on. I've been a Rutherford County resident most of my adult life. I raised my four children on the hard work and fresh air of farm life, and they're all Tennessee public school graduates. I was a stay-at-home mom until my kids began to leave for college, when I returned to my long-held dream of attending law school, and I became a lawyer in 2015. When I'm asked how I would govern, I have a simple three-question test. Is it rational? Does this legislation solve an identified problem in the state of Tennessee? Is it reasonable? Does this legislation make the very best use of your tax dollars and mine? And is it right? Does this legislation do the most good for the largest number of people with the least negative impact for the fewest number of people? My vision for District 14 provides health care for the working folks who need it while saving our rural hospitals, compensating our teachers with higher wages and tangible benefits while eliminating unnecessary student testing, and addressing our opioid addiction problem by destigmatizing treatment, holding the pharmaceutical industry accountable, and legalizing cannabis. My name is Gail, and I'm asking for your vote on March 13th in the special election for District 14. Radical, right? <laughs> that is as mainstream a democratic platform as you can get. However, there's one more eensy deensy teensy little thing that you need to understand to understand what is going to happen in this narrative. And it's this. I had been an out loud and out loud and proud atheist for over 10 years in my town in Tennessee. And while I didn't run on it, I didn't attempt to hide from it either. And as vanilla and conventional and as related to the issues as our campaign was when this video was released, the Tennessee GOP lost its collective damn mind. For example, this fella believes that in his 40 years of politics, I'm among the most dangerous women he may have come across. And this guy, this Randy McNally, Lieutenant Governor of the state of Tennessee. Also, the chairman of the state GOP party issued a statement to the Democratic U.S. Senate candidate and the state Democratic gubernatorial candidate, urging, their, urging them to disclaim me from the party for my un-American beliefs, which both of those gentlemen fortunately refused to do that. So in spite of all this drama and all these statements from the Tennessee GOP leadership, we began to rise in popularity. Volunteers streamed into our county offices, offering to knock doors and make phone calls and donations came in unsolicited. If you have ever worked on a campaign, you know what this piece of paper is. Uh, it's, a print, it's called print media and it's a big glossy postcard type snail mail piece of mail. These archaic, old-fashioned things cost about a dollar per voting household. So one mailing to 50,000 households, which was about what our district was, would cost $50,000. As we began to surge in visibility and word of mouth, the Tennessee Republican Party got busy with mailers. And honestly, credit where credit is due. Kudos to the GOP bro who thought of combining the crazy tinfoil hat conspiracy thing with the pussy hat. Edgy move, boys. Uh, notice, too, that the kooky ideas they credit me with are being pro-choice, supporting health care, and supporting education. Yet flyer after flyer, we continued to gain more supporters, more volunteers, more donations, and the flyers kept coming. Keep in mind that each one, time one of these things appears on the screen, it's $50,000 to our opponent. Our entire fundraising budget was $50,000, a goal which we proudly met. Okay, so now I need to tell you something about the next two slides. I'm, I'm not particularly proud of them, but I'm not ashamed enough to take them out of my talk. So take that for what it's worth. If you're going to run for office and you're gonna spend $50,000 to mail 50,000 flyers to 50,000 voting households, do you think you could proofread them first? Just me. And if you're going to spend $50,000 to mail 50,000 flyers to 50,000 voting households and you misspell the state in which you are running, you are automatically disqualified. Can I get an amen? Okay. In spite of the, uh, look at this distorted picture. In spite of the ugliness and the bigotry, we continue to climb. More voters registered, more volunteers calling and knocking on doors, more momentum for the campaign. Our strategy in this election is what is known in political circles as the get out the vote strategy. Remember, 
this was a special election. So we were on a compressed 12 week cycle and we had no time for what's known as a persuasion campaign. We sent postcards to every democratic voter in our district three times at a cost of exactly zero. Thousands and thousands of postcards. Every single postcard we sent was bought, handwritten, and posted to paid by volunteers through a grassroots effort known as Postcards to Voters. And if you don't know about Postcards to Voters, look them up. It's a fabulous way to kind of be an armchair activist in your own home. And the Republican flyers kept coming and we kept climbing. But then this happened. Now, I got to give you a little backstory on this one. In December of 2017, I had had the honor and privilege of marrying two dear friends. In celebrating the day, and with their permission, I posted on my public Facebook page the picture of the joyous event in, in classic Jordan snark. We're really good at that. In classic Jordan snark, my status read, doing my part to destroy the fabric of America. Funny, because I'm funny, I'm hilarious, invite me to your parties. So the Tennessee GOP lifted the image, turned it into a flyer, and sent it to 50,000 households in the district. What they didn't know is this. These two men are constituents in the district. One of these men is an Air Force veteran of the Iraqi war, and it won't surprise you, is diagnosed with combat-related PTSD. On a beautiful sunny morning in March of 2018, this honorable soldier walked to his mailbox, pulled out a flyer, and there was a photo of the happiest day of his life being mocked by the Tennessee Republican Party, sent to thousands. I will share here that Shane and Landon pursued legal action against the GOP, and in the interest of their privacy, that's as much as I'll say, other than to recognize them, if they ever see this talk on video, that Shane and Landon, I thank you first for your service to our country, and thank you, and I apologize for involuntarily sacrificing your privacy to the altar of bigotry in Tennessee. And yet we still climb more volunteers, more postcards, more door knocks, more calls, more donations, more endorsements, teachers, union members, senior adults, students, homemakers. The primary had come and gone. I had had no opponent, but the Republicans did and voter turnout was dismal. Between our momentum and the wretched primary turnout, my opponent's campaign then made the decision to engage in unethical and unconstitutional behavior. Now, I'm not going to make you read this whole thing. I know you can see it, but I want to start with the first five words. Good afternoon, pastors and friends. This letter was written by my opponent's campaign manager. It goes on to tell about the upcoming election and talks about me being the baby eating, goat sacrificing, Satan worshiping heathen that I am. And the obligatory paragraph about his, how much he, he loved baby Jesus credentials. And then we get to the money shot. First Amendment much? Say it with me if you know it. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So it, this might come as news to some of you, but it makes me so proud to say that when you try to breach the wall of separation of church and state in America, you're going to get national attention from the secular universe. Well, you're gonna get it from both sides. The same day I got retweeted by Dawkins, I got retweeted by, uh, that's the word I'm looking for here, this, um, let's call him a person. And it didn't stop there. We had a spot on NPR, our campaign was in USA Today, and then came the day when the entire space-time continuum was torn asunder. In the Republican primary, my opponent ran against a Tea Party candidate, and my opponent ran a similar dirty and disgusting campaign against him. So dirty, in fact, but this happened. I was endorsed by the Tennessee Tea Party. The Tennessee Tea Party endorsed the liberal atheist activist woman Dem Democrat. What is even happening? We had resisted in the face of all of that bigotry. We rallied against the ugliness, the fearful and hateful rhetoric, the attack on religious liberty, the mocking of an honorable soldier all of the time and money and passion and effort pushed back against the status quo. We fought and resisted and stayed true to our ethics and not one time did we violate our agreement to run a moral, clean, issue-based campaign. But the letters to the pastors had found their mark. 
And if you don't think that the dozens of churches and pastors to whom this letter was sent didn't immediately comply and preach from the pulpit the message of fear and divisiveness in politics, well, I beg your pardon, but you don't know Tennessee and you don't know religion. So let's drill down to what happened here. So the demographic of the non-religious is the fastest growing demographic in the country as it is in Tennessee. Mostly we're young and diverse, present company Daryl and I accepted. <laughs> the church going demographic is just the opposite. It's older and whiter. So this GOP candidate targeted this group of old white voters and listed the pastors to spread his message of the heathens are coming, the heathens are coming. This group of senior adults terrified and out and voted just as he planned, then retreated back into their homes and locked their doors, more angry and more afraid and more isolated than they were before. And their children have no health care, and their grandchildren have no broadband in the rural areas. Their neighbors get no relief from the opioid abuse via cannabis, and their local hospital is closed because it can't operate without insurance reimbursement. And do you know the expression rubbing salt in the wound or adding insult to injury? After this fellow was elected, the Tennessee Senate named him the Senate chaplain because of course Tennessee has a Senate chaplain. Because of, wait for it, you know I'm gonna say it, his strong defense of religious freedom. I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter at all. This is my not bitter face. But the result of the election is not the end of the story, as you know, not even close, it's the beginning. So what do we do? Not run, hide our beliefs. What can we take away from this experience? Here are some areas that I have identified. In March of 2018, thousands of Christian Democrats voted for an out and open atheist. This was in Tennessee where even our Democrats are moderate. And they not only voted for, but they campaigned for, donated to, and visibly supported a non-believer, at times presumably risking friendship and social standing. Number two, we opened up and added not just locally and not just at the state level, but nationally to a conversation about an atheist running for office. That's an important discussion to be had, and it's the first step toward many others. Number three, how many times as non-believers do we get the how can you be moral without religion question tossed to, toss to us? Because the Tennessee GOP elevated my secularism in every newspaper interview and radio interview and public appearance and podcast where folks could ask questions, I got to answer that one over and over and over again about what it means to me to be a humanist. My story that I shared repeatedly is that both my life and my campaign are driven by equal parts reason and compassion. What moves me to act is the well-being of my neighbors, their very real joy, and their very real suffering. My goal is to increase the joy and decrease the suffering. Number four, one of the great joys of the campaign is meeting fellow non-believers. So many times I was approached by someone who said, I'm not a believer, but I'm not out in my town, or I'm not a believer, but I can't tell my parents. And Thank you for representing what we value. At one appearance, a young mother attended with her two young daughters. She's raising her girls to be free thinkers and wanted them to shake my hand and take a picture of a non-religious person in a leadership role in the community. And number five, a trail was blazed. The seal is broken. Never again can it be said that this is the first time an atheist has run for public office in Tennessee. The visual I like to use is the image of laying down the grass for those who come behind us. And while they can never again say, this is the first time an atheist has run for state office in Tennessee, they will say, and maybe even about somebody not too far from now, never before has an atheist run for state office in Tennessee and won. So we circle back to the first question. Am I the most dangerous woman in Tennessee? And it won't surprise you. My answer in lawyerly flat fashion is, it depends. It depends on what you're afraid of. If you're afraid of a woman who will stand before hundreds and call out your bigoted and unconstitutional behavior, if you're afraid of a woman who will speak for those without a voice, for the disenfranchised, the underserved, the neglected, the poor, and the sick, 
If you're afraid of a woman who will relentlessly stand upon American secular values of truth, justice, equality, fairness, tolerance, education, and religious freedom for all, then the answer to the question of whether I'm the most dangerous woman in Tennessee is, you bet your sweet ass I am. Thank you everybody for bearing with me through the most of that. Okay, so stop screen share. Am I back? Are you back? I'll take care real quick here. There we go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was fantastic. <laughs> thank you, Eric. It was, you know, at the time, it was not an easy journey. It was, you know, it was, it was arduous and painful and frustrating. Yeah. And, and then when I tell the story now, it's hysterical and funny and stupid and ridiculous. But yeah, it's a good time. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest questions I was thinking about is like, what would life be like for you now had you uh won that seat i know right right yeah it was a uh you know i had to make the i had to make the commitment that had we won that seat i, I was going to take it wherever it was going to go you know mm -hmm. sometimes that may lead to long you know um state senate in tennessee's every four years maybe it would have been one term this was even a you know, a partial term. So maybe it would have been more terms. Maybe it would have been different. Maybe it would have just been the remaining three years on that term. Um, but it was a, you know, I had to, in my mind, make the commitment. And most of you know, I've, I've moved out to Oregon. It was something that I chose to do when I didn't win office, but it was, I was willing to not do that as much as I wanted to because of what it meant to have, to have held that office. You think you'll become the most dangerous woman in Oregon now? I no, I mean, you know, here's the, thing, here's the thing. It's it's whatever whatever my community needs of me, however I can help most. It's not it's not a throwaway yeah. for me to say what skill set do I bring and what does my community need? I, I you know, I hope that we would all do that. I hope that we all look around and say, here's a thing I can do, and here's a thing that needs what I can do. I, that's what brought me to RFR and it's what brought me to running for office. And it's not a bad measure to determine where how you spend your time. Now, one of the earlier questions uh, intrigued me. Uh, I don't know about state, I don't generally follow state politics where I am. Are there debates like there are at federal elections? Did you ever get to debate your opponent? I, well, I, we got to do a forum. They, do, they refused to do a debate. We, of course, we wanted to do a debate because really and truly the issues, we were on the right side of every issue. And I'm not just saying that because I'm biased about the party or the position. We simply were. You can't look at the statistics in a rural area. All of those things that I mentioned, the opioids and the education and all of those things, we were on the right side. And so they, they would not engage in a debate. They, we got to do a forum, which they would ask a question and he could answer and then I could answer. And so we got to do a forum and it was, it was well attended and it was, you know, it was awesome. It was wonderful. And he had the worst answers of all, of all time. It was just <laughs> terrible because there's, when you are, when you have been in a position of privilege for so long, they you know they have to do so little to continue to be elected. Uh, we have this happening at the national level, and I don't want to get too far into politics, but he was not ready with. They can say faith, freedom, family, and, and then they get elected because that's what that is. You know, we we have that that has happened in our country, depending upon your party. So. So when we had the when we had the uh, forum, it was um, I, I, if you will allow me an evil chuckle, it was glorious. <laughs> you know, um, what's kind of interesting, Gail, is that um, I, I kind of have heard your story from where you were before you transitioned out of religion, and the the times of, the kinds of topics that you talked about on your campaign, legalizing um, cannabis and. Uh, getting uh, affordable health care and, and those kinds of things. It seems like had you ran for um, office uh, just maybe a decade earlier or two decades earlier, you would have been on the GOP side. Well, so there was a was there a transition in your um, your life from one side to the other? It, 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 there absolutely was. It's and it's it's even hard for me to talk about because it makes me feel like what what was I thinking? But of course, all of us that have come from religion have those moments. What was I thinking, or was I thinking? Um, in my defense, in my defense, <laughs> back in the day when I was a Republican, things were a little bit different than they are now. Please tell me they were a little bit different than they are now. You know, we my my uh, husband at the time was former military. Um, 
I was not politically active. I just voted Republican because my parents voted Republican, my husband voted Republican, and they seemed to be on the right side of the, the church where I attended. And it, it, and the irony is, in my church, I was considered, you know, a radical because I actually didn't, I didn't, I didn't comply, and I didn't run the party line for a lot of the issues. I didn't think it was evil or bad or wrong for to, to be gay. And I taught my children that, even though church doctrine was and felt like that was a bad thing, I didn't think that women shouldn't have a right to choose, even when I was a religious person. So, so part of it is that part of it is I had I had a lot of children close together. My hands were full. My plate was full. And so I wasn't politically active at all. Had I given it some thought, more serious thought, which I did when I finally made my deconversion, I realized that I was on the wrong, that, that my former conservative opinions were, um, they weren't reasonable based on what our society was facing and the issues on, on anything. I wasn't on the right side of it. So I did make that transition. It, me just chatting about this, Eric, just with you, just as casually as possible, belies the tough journey that it was. Yeah. Because like, like a lot of us, when I, when I walked away from religion, everything about what I believed in changed. I, what I wanted my life to mean, what, how I wanted to plug into my community, how I wanted to be remembered, what my legacy was, how I wanted to, 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 to continue to raise my children, although they were almost grown at the time, all of that changed. And so it was um, 15 years out, it's easy to look back and kind of be philosophical about it. At the time, it was arduous and difficult and frustrating and terrifying. Did When you were being interviewed, or in fact, when you were talking to constituents, did any of them ask you why you converted, why you deconverted? Yes, and Rob, you know, I love that question. If, if I had to do it all over again, I would be, I would have been more vocal about that experience. It was so hard in these so in these rural Tennessee rooms. A lot of it would be mostly men, because of I don't know, just the you know part of the package. These are conservative Republican men, and I was trying not to make religion the issue because I knew I wasn't going to win on that. I was trying to make the issues the issues. If I had to do it all over again, I might would have backed up and said, "Let me let me tell you why I feel like I feel. Let me tell you why I feel like." the change that I can make here on this earth is what matters to me, you know? And so um, mm. it's, it's, it's hard to look at it in retrospect and know if it would have had any different outcome had I done that. I just, I knew what I was up against with the religion thing and I tried to make it about the issues. And so I don't know that there was, Tennessee is still in the same hot mess that it was, you know, six years ago. It's, yeah. it's not, nothing has changed. We don't have I, different leadership. We still have a Republican supermajority. We still have the same issues plaguing us. The hot, I was more curious, not, not regarding whether like, you should have or would have said something that would have made a difference, but I was curious because people who know me who know that I used to be religious went to Catholic school for 12 years. They never asked me why I don't believe anymore. They just, I think they're afraid of the answers. So I was wondering just from that perspective. I, you know, I think, I think you're right. I don't know specifically if anybody, I don't, I think you're right. I don't think they will really, really want to know that. And, and, and I read articles from Christian authors trying to explain why so many people are leaving church. And of course their opinion is, well, because, because these folks want to, you know, party and sin and, and I just feel like they, babies. Have you asked mm, yeah. Them? So <laughs> yeah. No, I, have you asked any of us, you know, why, we left and maybe uh, I, 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 I talk a little bit about this in our family dynamic. My daughter that's in the room here with me, when we, when we did our family journey away from religion, some of the kids, there's four children and me, and, and some of the children put a more uh, higher premium on the fact that, it, that the Bible was anti-science. That bothered us. It was a big thing for me. It was you know, there's, it's conflict, you know, the sun and the earth and the, everything was so anti, it was so wrong about so many things. Glenda had an experience where it wasn't about the right, it wasn't about the incorrectness of the science. It was about the immorality of it. And those two things don't necessarily have anything. They're both valid reasons for having walked away from the belief system. Um, so there are, um, more than one way to skin the proverbial cat. I hate that expression. I don't know why I use that one. Uh, there are there are different avenues away, and so each of the kids, according to who they were and what they did, came at it from a different angle. All valid. So yeah, 
it was it was a multifaceted the our our deconversion process and i say our as in my family my children and i because they were we we didn't quite walk out hand in hand but we, we were not far from it it was all according to who they were and how old they were and their birth order and what mm. their process was but so no one no no one would have asked me that so I got to get this out there because it's in the chat from one of your children and uh, people who are watching this on YouTube won't have heard it. There uh, was also a huge social media discussion about how evil you were because you turned your children to atheism. Want to talk <laughs> about that? There was multiple social media discussions. There was the everything from, yes, she turned her children into atheists and so she's going to burn in hell to it, to don't get close to her because you know she may do the same thing to you she's looking to make atheists of everybody who's you know everybody who comes in contact with her she won't be happy until everybody is you know is no longer a believer so there was a lot of social media drama whenever i was running for office and and every post you know how it goes you know you put stuff out on twitter and facebook and my campaign manager was really good at social media so she, we were constantly putting things out and it poked the proverbial hornet's nest over and over and over again. It was just more than they could not, they just couldn't bear it. They could not let it go. And the corruption of our children, think, won't somebody think of the children? It was just relentless. Yeah, Glenda oh, probably wouldn't, wouldn't have her hair in all those weird colors if she was still a believer. <laughs> right? That's a you sin say weird nature. You say weird, Rob, and I say beautiful. That's <laughs> uh, a sin against nature, absolutely. <laughs> Right. If God had you know, intended Gail, hair color like that, he would have made hair color like that. Right. That's all I'm saying. Um, uh, when I was kind of hearing you uh, talk about the shift, uh, I, I kind of heard you almost meant, or, you know, say that like, not only did you inherit your religion, like you went with the religion of the, the people you grew up with, but you also inherited their, the political views uh, as well. And, um, and uh, I kind of hear that you were just so busy working with your family and kind of being a good Christian that you didn't have time, I guess, to think critically about these views. Um, what you kind know, of. I, I, Eric, it's, you know, it's real hard for me to hear it when it's like that, but honestly, that honestly, it was simply my life was so full and we were in church yeah. every time the doors were open. It was a question of not reflect. I didn't have time for anything. <laughs> I didn't have time yeah. for you know, I had four children in four years. So it was, you know, getting enough food for all of them and clean clothes and getting them to school and all the things was, uh, you know, I just didn't have the brain space for, for anything else. So I, I'm not proud of that. It, that I didn't do a better job of that, of finding some way to think, gosh, that was, you know, that's hard to say, but, it, but, in, but that's the truth of it. Well, tell me kind of what started that shift for you um, uh, from uh, being more conservative, more on the Republican side, over to the, the more liberal side? What what were some of the triggers that you can recall or, or think of? Well, I mean, those kids, they were just, now the children, <laughs> uh, so I had, we, I had four children in three years. I, I threw doubles the last time. So we had four children. Three Snake years. eyes. So they were all, yes, they all, um, sort of went into adolescence one after another, all at the same time. And when they came to, I was so prepared. I was so hip. I was so prepared for them to come to me with Christian youth group questions. You know, the, all the passages in the Bible that were anti-science, the, the passages about bashing the infants' heads on the rocks, that was troublesome. The talking yeah. donkey. I mean, all of it. And I expected that. That's I'm glad teenagers should do that. And I had taught these children that being a mom was the best thing I have ever done. I loved every minute of it, every dirty diaper, every meltdown, everything. I loved it. And 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 they were such a joy. Watching them grow and learn was was my everything. So when they were little bitty kids, we would find a bug we've never seen before. It's a pre-internet. And we'd go to the library and we'd find the book and we'd look up the bug and we'd learn something about the bug. And I had taught these children to be relentless in their pursuit of knowledge and truth and information. We valued highly education. So, so when they got to be teenagers and they started going to, they had come out of their rural middle school and started going to high school where they were exposed to a, a little bit more, a little bit more diversity. And they started 
asking those questions. And I said, those are very, very good questions. Let's see if we can get an answer. So we started with asking in what I call inside the bubble. We started asking our youth minister and our pastor and our Sunday school teacher, what about all these things? What about the anti-science? What about the stuff that's so wrong? What about the talking talkie? What about all of this, you know, the flood, the animals on that boat, <laughs> millions of animals on that boat. And the, and, and the religion has answers for that. They're not very satisfying answers. They're party line answers. There are answers. And so that we would come back together. And this is sort of over years. This is not condensed down to a week or so. This is over time. We would come back and we would talk about it again and try to share what we had learned. And then we started looking outside the bubble. We started reading about anthropology and history and other religions. They were exposed to believers of Islam at their high school. They were exposed to people who were from a vastly different viewpoint. All of those things factored into it. And very slowly, the children, according, as I said earlier, kind of according to their personality and their birth order, the, the, the oldest one stomped away, you know, oh, this is bullshit. I'm not, you know, whatever. And then, and then the other ones were more, more introspective and it took a little bit longer. The girls lost a very close friend at the beginning of high school that shouldn't, he was a wonderful Christian young man. There is no reason if God had anything to do with anything that this young man should have died. That lots and lots and lots of things factored into the questioning and the process I was the, I was tail end Charlie. I had had such, um, I was a leader in my church. My former husband, we were leaders in our church. We had had very positive experience in church. We were elevated. We were among the privileged few. We were looked up to. We were highly respected. I, I was so much more vested than the children were. So as they began to walk away and, and, and they started to leave me and go to college and here I am, um, I, I stayed probably a year too long trying to fake it, trying teaching Sunday school that I didn't believe, trying to not do what I had to do until finally, uh, you know, I drank too much. It was a bad time. I made some really bad calls, made, made some bad judgments until finally I said, it's, I can't, I can't, I, it's no longer a choice. I have to do this. I, I, I told everybody, I don't believe this anymore. The marriage that I thought was going to be at risk if I did that. <laughs> didn't survive. My parents yeah. melted down. My dad screamed at me and told me, he told me I was midlife crazy. It's the ugliest thing he could think. My mother wept. It was just, it was, it was so painful and so hard, which is why I, and I knew it was, I knew that was going to be part of it. And that, and that was not even, that's not even beginning to touch on the politics part of it. That was just the deconversion part of it. So so all of that, I can summon that feeling in a second. And that's why I do what I do at our bar, because I, I'm so close to it, even though I'm years past. And even though I've gone through so much recovery, I can put myself there in an instant. And I know that panic and I know that sorrow. I know that feeling. I know that grief. Um, I also know what it's like on this side and the light and the air and the space and the life that's on this side mm. and that those two things knowing that and this is what keeps me doing what i do at rfr i think that was not the answer to your question i think we got off politics <laughs> for a minute, but that's such a part of the story it sounds like that this kind of thing started to happen when you had a moment to yourself when you had time to sort of uh not like because you were talking about how your children were starting to leave one after another and um, I, I can, I'm seeing you kind of being left alone in your own thoughts too, to kind of seriously ponder this stuff. And, and at the time, I know it's not accurate at the time. I didn't know that I knew another non-believer except for my own children who had right. confided in me that they were losing confidence in their beliefs. I, I knew one atheist and he was an angry young white college boy. Surprise! <laughs> because it was, it was, um, that was the only one that I knew that was out. I think everything's different now. I think almost every person in, in this country knows someone who knows someone who's an atheist. We use the word a little bit more comfortably. Uh, people are, we know what our, we know what our trajectory is for nuns in O-N-E-S, non-believers in this country. So I, so I don't think it's, it's not that it's any less difficult. I'm not saying it's not any, that it's less arduous. I'm just saying it's not quite 
uh, as shocking to hear that someone is an, is a non-believer. So yeah, I um, and so I think that people people who are more um, um, who did carve out time for themselves to think these things through that I didn't do or that didn't have quite the stack of four little bitty kids all at one time that I did might, you know, I think that people are coming out younger and younger. I think especially young people are saying this is not relevant to me. It's not, does, it's not reasonable. It doesn't, it, it doesn't, uh, it's, it's out of, con it's in conflict with science. Um, it's incongruent with what we know, how the world works. And so I think that they, that they, that they leave earlier and when you leave earlier and you're not so vested in it, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not quite so painful and not quite so large. I, I assume your experience in that part of the country was mostly with white folks. Uh, when, when I get callers from RFR who are African-American, they seem to still have more of an issue where it's a shock and their family or friends don't know any atheists. And, and it seems like they're back 20 years regarding you know that subculture of america it's, it's kind of it's surprising a, to like me. everything else it's it's compounded exponentially and made more difficult because of that because of the you know because of our because of our history of of uh, race relations in our own country because of the insidious nature of how religion teaches people to be subservient even at their own expense <laughs> I think all of those things, and and the black non-believing community can make this point better than I can. That it's that it's made that much worse all over again. Um, it's such an identity. It's and to break away from that, even to break away to think about that, not just to say, okay, well, I'm ready to disbelieve. Just let me think about this. Let me have these doubts. Let me explore these questions. Uh, religion gives lip service to that. If you go to a church and you say, oh, I'm having doubts. Oh, everybody will pray for you and will work you through that. And they say that that's a good thing because then you'll be more confident in your beliefs. But, but it only goes so far because if you get to the point where you go, okay, well, good. I had the doubts and now I don't believe any longer. It's over. Party's over. Peace out. Yeah. See you later. Yep. I just yeah. watched uh, an Anthony Magnabosco video where the person he was interviewing was a Christian, uh, as most of them are. And he was making a big point of there being a difference between having questions and doubting. And it's like, I, that wasn't sinking in my head, but to him, it was an important difference. Huh, maybe that's a piece of it. Yeah, like I yeah. said, I, if you were to ask a religious person or a religious community, is it okay to have doubts? Oh, sure, of course it is, of course it is. So read your Bible and, be, and pray about it and let your, let your fellowship of fellow believers pray about it. And then, you know, but if you reach the wrong conclusion, you know, their work here is done. It's over. It's finished. One of the things that, um, uh, so one of the things that happened to me and, and inside of the support groups, I also hear this conversation too, is that our, 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 we do not expect these shifts in our thinking of political topics or social situational topics. We don't think we expect these shifts and it can't come that came to us uh, came as a surprise to me and it come, came as a surprise to so many other people who were in these support groups um, uh, meetings that, that I've been a part of uh, for with RFR. Um, what was um, you know, so I kind of wanted to have this conversation about uh, around that and kind of talk about how things shifted for you. So what was like the hardest thing to give up uh, as you were transitioning out of religion when it came to your conservative background? Um, the, the, there's, there's the infrastructure. The community was a, you know, was a tremendous loss. These, I, 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 this, these were my friends. This was my community. This was, this was everything. The belief part. Um, um, let me lie down on the couch for just a second and, give, <laughs> and talk about this. No, the, the loss of the loss of the eternal parent that thought I was the cutest thing in shoe leather. You know, we're taught that God loves us so much and he sent his son to die for us and he adores us and he knows us and he knows the number of hairs on our head. Uh, on this side of it, that is terrifying. At the time, if you have had a, whether you've had a good relationship with a parent or not, when you feel that beloved, that, you know, God killed his kid for you, well, there's guilt that's associated with that, but there's also, wow, he must really love me. And when you lose that, 
there is a there's grief there's a loss it's sorrow uh when you get on the back side of it where you can see the needle point stitches a little bit better and you see well there's nothing much worse than that <laughs> that you would have a parent breathing down your neck for your whole life judging you and making sure that you were towing the line and threatening to punish you if you didn't but but that comes later in the beginning that's the loss of a parent the loss of god who loved me more than anything was grief um the the loss of my marriage was profound still profound to this day profound um the I think, Eric, when you first started asking your question and you talked about how it takes us by surprise, I would probably have been one of those people who would have said, oh, my political beliefs have nothing to do with my religion. They, you know, I've, I've come to that conclusion on my own and I wouldn't have thought those had anything to do with anything. And then as soon as you get away from that and you start thinking about solutions to problems, when we are believers, the solutions to problems are we pray about it. We accept that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. We accept that there are millions of children dying of hunger every day. And best we can do is pray about, it, or maybe give a little bit of money to some org or something. When you walk away from that and there's nobody coming to rescue us, there's no hero at the end. There's no uh, cosmic solution to this. It is on us as human beings. These are our problems for us to solve together. That was what made the change for me. That was what made me change mm. from being a bootstraps kind of a person where you take care of yourself and I'll take care of myself to if I don't need your help now, it's just because I'm in a good place. There will come a time when I need your help and there will come a time when you need my help. And that's what, that's what we do. And that's what makes us human. And that's the joy of, of being human. And that so aligned with the other political party that that's what it felt like for me to make my journey. That's where I feel like I transitioned because I was no longer in a place where I could judge other people because they didn't live up to the standard of whatever it was they were supposed to be doing. Instead of being thoughtful and compassionate about life sucks sometimes and it's hard sometimes and we get dealt shitty hands sometimes and we need each other sometimes. And so that's, that's a big part of what drove that. And I would, at the time, I would not have said that that had anything to do with my religious beliefs. I would have said whatever, what I, whatever it was I would have said. I just had a call I, yesterday about that subject where someone had stepped out, they decided they don't believe anymore. But then for some reason, he started talking about political question. He says, but I'll never believe that abortion is a murder. And maybe you will at some point, but he was like, oh no, there's no way I can change my mind on that. I tried to do a little street epistemology on that subject. Well, and, the, and, and, and as I, you know, as I hear, as I near my twilight years, I do, there's a, um, all the things that you said you would never do, <laughs> you know, you, you become softer to that. You recognize that you may not know everything you think you know, and that you, life has a way of changing us. And we do learn more things as we go. And instead of being so arrogant about, well, I'm never going to, you know, I, I try not to do, I try not to do that. I try to have a little bit of a sensitivity and stay receptive and stay open and keep learning and keep evolving and keep progressing and 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 be open to what life has to teach you and where you have to go and to learn. So Gail, I think that you answered a different question that I asked brilliantly is beautiful. <laughs> I think I did it every time. <laughs> so I don't know if that was your way of like not ans answering the question or if I didn't ask it right. Well, good question. Ask it again. It was something about something, something about how Eric, she answered every question I asked exactly as I anticipated. <laughs> Thank you. I like the way Rob is saying things to me. I, like, so there are social issues out there, like like abortion or or like welfare or uh, infrastructure, you know, education. Um, and when I was religious, I had uh, views of um, so these these social issues one way. And then as I came out, um, they shifted to a different way. And some were harder to give up than others. Uh, so for you, 
um, was it something that was like really quick? Like, oh, um, was conservative, now I'm a liberal. Or was there some difficult things to give up? Um, I am trying to be thoughtful about your question. No, it, I don't remember. I don't, nothing stands out in my memory that was hard, that made me latch onto some a belief that I had been vested in. Sometimes, Eric, I think that those beliefs that benefit us are the ones that um, are the hardest to let go. And I know um, not to not since mm, we've already done politics, we may as well talk about uh, sex and gender, because I think sometimes men struggle with that more because they have been in such a position, such an elevated position. Religion has done it. Politics has done it. Our country's history has done it. It may be harder for men to let some of those things go because they um, it takes you out of the top of the top of the food chain, so to speak. And women have not occupied that top position. So it's easier for us to go, oh, I see how life can be unfair. I see how if you have all of these strikes against you from the beginning, you know, life is not remotely fair. And 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 even though as a political party, we we on my side try to make things as equal as possible, we'll never reach that. Doesn't mean we can't strive to reach it. So so I I think your question is, I, I don't remember anything once I made the, once I dropped the belief in the supernatural and I realized that this is on us, my reasonable, thoughtful approach was easy enough to go, okay, I think this political party aligns more closely with me. And while, mm. while it was still a, a, a journey of learning and it still is, and I still am finding things out about my country's history and you know, that are, that, that's, that are unpleasant, that I don't love, too bad, so sad, you know, I have to get over myself. So, so I don't think I can answer that question with any one thing being any harder than any other. I love that answer, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> that, that, um, that, that's very kind of similar to me. Like once I realized, uh, hey, th we're all we have, this is it. Uh, like, uh, the problems that we've got we've made and the problems that we've got we can probably we can solve uh, if we work together we can't just wait for some daddy in the sky to uh figure it out for us <laughs> right right it's on us it on it's on us and that's and that's you know to come full circle that's what made me motivated to run when i say that in my talk about what, what moves me is making my community a better place caring about people's real suffering and caring about their well-being and and we have in the we have the ability to make things better for people we we as a society we as a government we as a country we have that ability and um and i know i have been i have lived a, a pretty privileged life i i have i have expectations of myself to be able to give back to to contribute and maybe maybe some you know some in some way i can because I have that responsibility. You know, there's, I think it's even in the Bible. I think all religions have some variation of to whom much is given, much is expected. And I, that's, a, that's a personal philosophy too. I, I know how fortunate I have been. I have these incredible kids and this incredible life and this fabulous partner and this wonderful job and all of these things. I, I, I don't just get to sit here in my hot tub of goodness and soak it all up. I, I have to give back. I have to share. I, I, I need and want to do that. When, does it become overwhelming for you? Like this, this huge feeling of responsibility? A hundred percent of the time. Yeah. A hundred percent of the time. I'm, I'm absolutely, I am, I am so overwhelmed by where we are in this country. I can't articulate it. I have trouble speaking about it because I am so confused about where we are. I'm so frustrated about where we are. I'm so sad about where we are when we have so much and we're not doing the best we can not by a long shot. So yes, it overwhelms me all the time. I, I have learned that I have to sit with some of that. I try not to blip over it. I, you know, I talked a little bit about that, about not having time to reflect on things when my children were little. I try not to do that quite so much anymore. If I'm in sorrow, if I am freaked out about what's happening. I, I, instead of, oh, I got to find something else to do. I'll go read a book. I'll go watch a program. I'll go listen to a podcast. I don't do that. I sit in it and I, and I reflect on it and I let it wash over me and I, and I let it let, and I'm overwhelmed. 
I don't say think that's I don't know if that's good or not. It's just my it's just how I deal with it. I let it I I I let it make me sad. I let it make me mad. I let it inspire me to say, okay, get a grip. I can't fix the whole country. Can I fix my little corner of it? Can I make RFR better? Can I help my kids do better? Can I help my little tiny town do better? Okay, okay. And then and then I can catch my breath and I'm no less overwhelmed, but I'm focused and directed and, and I'm able to do something. And that is, is why I'm here. It's, it's why I do what I do. It's beautiful. Rob, do you have any other questions? No, that was a very, very intriguing discussion, I must say. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, everyone, for being here. I, I, um, it was, <laughs> as I said, I have my, I should be lying on a couch. This was therapeutic for me. I love sharing, <laughs> I love sharing the story of politics because it's funny and, you know, poor little Tennessee. It was, it, yeah, I, I, I've often said the Republicans gave me this narrative. I didn't do it. <laughs> me this whole talk so thanks guys um and, it, and it's important to share because people who don't live in the south have no clue what that's actually like there it's this is genuine and real and and people who say that there's no racism or there's none of that kind of stuff you ain't from tennessee so so it helps me to let to shed some light on some very real problems and so thank you for letting me um, thank you for letting me share all this it's been awesome Absolutely. Um, you know, we, uh, th this is a little bit shorter than we normally have. And, and the questions that we had in the chat, we've actually asked uh, you all. <laughs> so um, uh, we're, we're about ready to, uh, oh, here we go. Uh, have any, uh, so here's another question. Has, uh, back to your um, campaign days, uh, after that you kind of got that attention, have there been any other uh, potential um, candidates who have reached out to you for advice on mm -hmm. how to run a campaign? Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and if so, what, what advice would you give to somebody? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, tried to, I tried to always keep the focus. The reason I was running, when I, when I first started running, because I was already, because I was already the executive director of RFR, and I was known in the secular community, the secular world was lovely, so supportive and so wonderful and so awesome. And they donated and they volunteered and that was awesome. Um, but, but it was very important for me to stay focused on my people. The reason I was running was, was for the people in my district and the things, sorry, Daryl is in a conversation. Um, <laughs> oh, I was confused. I'm hearing Daryl, but he's muted. He's coming through he, your he's microphone. In my, he's in my living room. Uh. <laughs> um, so he's just right downstairs. No, I, I wanted to make sure that I was, I was not running to be the first atheist to run in first state office in Tennessee. I was not running to be a secular senator. I was not running to be any of those things. I was running because I felt like I could make a difference in the lives of the people in my district, my neighbors that needed help. They needed their rural hospitals not closing. They needed broadband for their children. They needed to pass cannabis legislation so we could get something going on the opioid crisis. And so when people reach out to me, the one of the first, if they're running as a secular person, especially in a religious area is to say, look, this is, this is not about being a secular person that may be incidental to your run, but your heart and your focus has to be on your people. And if it's on that you're gonna, you're gonna be this first atheist to run for, ten, for whatever in whatever state, my suggestion is go find something else to do. That's, that, that'd be the, the worst motivation to run. That's the first thing that I tell them. The second thing is don't be afraid of your story. Um, mm. That thing that I said about, that when Rob asked that question, I might, push a little harder on why, you know, why, I, not necessarily why I left religion, but why I moved to, to do good things, why I moved to run for office, why I want to have this ability to help with legislation is because I, you know, I care about my neighbors. I care about their well-being. The reason I care about this, I mean, I, it wasn't, that wasn't an anti-religion message. That I, that I care about people between you and me and the fence post, this is the only life we know we get. And so um, I, I stayed away from that expression too. If, you know, everyone has to, if, if anyone is running for office or running for, even if you're running for school board or dog catcher or whatever it is, you have to make the determination on how you want to run. But my primary 
piece of advice would be to ensure absolutely positively that you are running for the reason to help make life better in your community, period. That's great. Um, we got another question that came in. Um, you, in your talk, you had mentioned that there was a letter that was sent out to all the pastors and the pastors um, uh, unconstitutionally broke their nonprofit uh, um, promise and talked to their uh, congregation about it. Were you able to follow up with any legal action on that kind of uh, situation? Another good question, Eric. We talked about it. Uh, you know, we, we didn't, I, I spoke with um, I spoke with the legal representatives at FFRF and at American Atheist. Just, and I, I did that before we ever even had our, when it became, when it became obvious that we were having this big church state separation thing, when Dawkins chimed in and Franklin Graham chimed in and I called them and I said, is there any, you know, what, what advice do you have for me? I, uh, I was in the middle of it. Now I have hindsight on looking back on it. Should I have made a bigger deal about it? I would like for my, I would like, I would have liked for the people in my district to understand what separation of church and state is so that when mm -hmm. this other guy gets elected and he gets made chaplain because of his strong defense of religious liberty, I wanted them to understand that's not exactly what this, what happened here. Religious liberty is religious freedom for everyone, not just your flavor. That you know, that's a civics conversation. I don't know that a politician can, uh, you know, maybe if I had been elected, maybe I had this vision, I had this idea of having these community town meetings, not to persuade them of my way of thinking, but to review the constitution and to understand why would that have been on, you know, let's just talk about that. Why would that have been unconstitutional? What foundational promise are we breaching here when the pastor stands up there and tells you, you know, who to vote for? I would like to have done that because I guess maybe I'm a teacher at heart, but, um, and I don't, and I don't, you know, I never, that never got to go full cycle. I never, I didn't pursue any kind of legal action. You know, I dropped off into obscurity because if you don't win the election now, I'm, you know, just whatever. So I never got to help those folks that were, that voted for what they thought was a defense of religious freedom by voting for the other guy. And that, you know, eh, it, I can't, you can't, you can't accomplish everything. So I had to let some of that go. So there's a question in the chat, which I'm not sure if you covered. If you did, I missed it. Um, what did you do before you were a lawyer? And, I, and I'd add to that, what made you decide to go into law? So before I was a lawyer, I was a stay-at-home mom. I was a stay-at-home mom forever. And I had always, always wanted to go to law school, but uh, I, it just didn't happen for me when I was young. And so, so I decided to go when I was 50. And I started law school when I was 50. And uh, now I have, as you, as you mentioned, an estate planning practice, and um, I have this work that I do here at RFR, and I have this place out in Oregon, and that's what I do now. What, what, drew, you another... to, what drew you to the law, though? What drew me to the law? Um, I, I, oh, gosh, the, whole, the reason anybody's a lawyer, because I'm going to make things fair and just, because I have the ability <laughs> to do that. <laughs> And I just, I am, ins I am insatiable for knowledge. I wanted to go to law school because I wanted to know. I wanted to learn about the law. I wanted to learn about the history of law. I wanted to learn about our constitution. I wanted to learn. And when you go to law school, you don't necessarily major in anything. You get to learn all of that mm -hmm. stuff. So my motivation for law school was as much the knowledge as it was the career. I'm not so sure every person goes into the law that, that my, my ex brother-in-law is a lawyer and I just think he wanted to argue in court. I mean, he just liked that idea. Oh, I mean, yeah, we, we, we like that part too, but <laughs> imagine making a career decision for that or, or the money. Don't do that. Don't for that. Don't do it for that either. Cause it's not, you got to love what you're doing. And then if you happen to choose an area of practice where the money comes rolling and, you know, bully for you, but uh, I, I wouldn't choose that for, as the motivation. We got another question. Um, you had mentioned there was a chaplain in the Senate of the, the Kentucky or Tennessee state Senate. Uh, we have this separation of church and state uh, rule that is baked into the constitution. So how can that be legal? How do they get away with it? <laughs> I bet Rob has an answer for that, too. Did you know that there are seven state constitutions that disallow atheists running for office, and Tennessee's one of them? It mm. says that 
and I think the way the Tennessee Constitution reads is uh, you have to have a belief in a higher power, something, 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 because Eric, we live in a, we, you know, we live in a Christian nationalist society. And that's exactly why that we have things like a Senate chaplain. We have it at the, you know, at the national level. That's not yeah. it's just the, it's the bleed over. And it's the misunderstanding of people uh, understanding what the separation of church and religion is. It's just, and it's, it's, um, it's our it's our legacy as our country, and it's it's why we're in the hot mess that we're in. Quite frankly, if you want to ask me, but um, yeah, and that's even that's not even Tennessee uh, was trying to pass legislation, tried for years, and finally passed legislation to make the Bible the state book. We also have uh, not to get into. We've touched on every controversial subject, so I guess I'll keep going. <laughs> we have in Tennessee a state gun. Now you would think it might be something that had to do with the Tennessee volunteers or it is a semi-automatic modern weapon is our state, yes. our state gun. So um, I, I can't hardly begin to answer the question. Why would there be? A, <laughs> a does job? every state have a state gun? No. Colorado. Yeah. Colorado does. Look I'm deep. sure Colorado. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 you guys all got tickets to the gun show. Jeez, Louise. I know. So proud. Well, Gail, my friend, I can't again thank you so much for being here. Before we kind of wrap up and conclude, do you have any final thoughts or things that uh, you uh, wanted to cover that we didn't talk about? Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to share this story. As I said at the time, it was difficult and now it's a funny story to tell, but I hope that there's a takeaway from it. And that is, if we, as if we need reminding, the power of religion in the lives of people can make people do things that otherwise they wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't necessarily do. I don't think this, this opponent that I had and his campaign manager and his whole team, I don't think they're bad, evil people, but they did bad things. They did unconstitutional, unethical things because they were driven by power. They were driven by their faith, their belief that they were right, and that at all cost, whatever it took for them to win this campaign, they were to win. So um, it's important for us, as I said, when I, you know, to sit with it, it's important for us to recognize those things for what they are. And this opportunity has been, um, especially before the home team crowd, it's just been awesome to share this story with you. And thank you for all of your questions. And thank you for coming and attending week to week. And um, Eric and Rob, thank you for your awesome job. And Glendy for troll smashing and all that. <laughs> thank you so much, Gail. It's a pleasure having you on. <laughs> Thanks, thank you. Recovering from Religion is a nonprofit organization whose mission it is to provide hope, healing, and support to those struggling with issues of doubt and non-belief. Hope, healing, and support is waiting for you on our website, recoveringfromreligion.org. There, you can speak or chat with a trained agent who will work with you through your struggles and doubts or to help find resources that may work for you. You can also find local Recovering From Religion support groups in your area for the long-term recovery work. Resources specifically curated for those struggling with doubts, disbelief, and trauma can also be found on the RFR website. To connect with a secular therapist in your area, go to seculartherapy.org and create an account. If you'd like to support the work that RFR does, you can donate or sign up as a volunteer on the Recovering From Religion website. It's also a big help subscribing to the RFR YouTube channel, our blog, or following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be emailed to us at rfrx at recoveringfromreligion.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll be with us next time on the Recovering From Religion podcast.